The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. And one of the things that I've discovered in my uh, few short years of, of teaching the Bible is anytime you talk about the problem of evil, the question of why bad things happen to good people, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, the reality is every single person in this room has struggled with that question at some point in their life. Why do evil things take place? And maybe has even, even more specifically struggled with this question. Jesus, where are you? Like, we, we have an experience of some kind of evil, some kind of suffering, and we read the Bible, and we hear the stories that our parents maybe taught us about how, how big and strong and capable Jesus is, how he sees us and he knows our suffering, and we, and, and we ask, Jesus, where are you in this particular situation? I would imagine that that has happened to every soul in this room, and in fact, that question is a question that resurfaces again and again and again in the scriptures. I think of places like Psalm 13, where the psalmist is suffering, and he says, Lord God, I know you're strong, I know you're there, intervene. Where are you? I, I, I need your strength to be present and, and be made known here in this circumstance. The passage that we read last week in Acts chapter 12 tells the story of how the disciples, as the church is advancing, the disciples sort of draw the attention of this local tyrant, a guy named Herod. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that anytime a Herod is brought up, it's usually bad news. The Herods are not good guys. And that question of Jesus, we know you're strong, we know you're present, can you intervene? I would imagine it was a question that was very present and very strong for these early Christians. Because in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, we're told that Herod lays hands on the early Christians. And in fact, he actually takes the life of one of Jesus' three closest friends, a guy called James. We're told that James is martyred by King Herod, and another guy, Peter, is imprisoned by King Herod because he sees that it pleases the masses. All right, so this question, Jesus, where are you? We know you're strong, we know you're capable, we know you see us, why don't you intervene and act, was surely a question that plagued the early church, particularly in this instance. Jesus, we, we're watching two of your three closest disciples, one whose life is taken, one who's being unjustly imprisoned. We're seeing them opposed by this king, this tyrant, Herod. Where are you, Jesus? Will you do something about this? As we mentioned, Herod Agrippa, who happens to be the grandson of Herod the Great, who sought to kill Jesus when he was a baby, he's the nephew of the other Herod who killed John the Baptist, and there's still another Herod that's going to make an appearance later on in the book of Acts. They have these tendencies, these similarities, we might say, that they all seem to share in these scriptures. In fact, in the community group this week, Daniel Cutt said, you might could say, they inherited it, which, which is both, yeah, <laughs> sickening and brilliant at the same time. We're told that this Herod is hostile to Christians. It's probably he just didn't like the noise, the, the, the constant having to attend to the kerfuffles that kind of surrounded these early Christians. He lays hand on a number of Christians. He puts James to death, and he imprisons Peter. And like Herod's uncle, when he killed John the Baptist, he was motivated by the crowds. said that he saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he said, why don't I go arrest Peter? Keep doing this. Keep pleasing the people. Herod nabs Peter and intends to kill him. And we're told that the early church devotes themselves to prayer, that this instance drives them to go to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, we, we, 
we remember when you told us that all power and all authority belong to you. We, we saw you ascend to the heavenly places. You told us that you were going to send us to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We believe that you have purposes for us in this, and, and yet we're struggling to see it. We want to see you, Jesus, be strong and intervene and, and act on behalf of your people, Jesus. And then, of course, last week we see that Jesus does exactly that when he rescues Peter and this dramatic, amazing rescue by night. Peter's in prison, but not for long. And it's actually portrayed as the kind of exodus. We're told a couple of times in that passage that Peter is in prison during the time of Passover, during the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which if you know your Old Testament, reminds you of the story of the exodus. Not only that, but Peter gets dressed quickly in the middle of the night, and he's led by an angel through the gates of the city, ultimately reunited with the disciples. It gives a picture of the exodus. And if that's the case, Herod then kind of fulfills a familiar role that we've seen happen in the story of the scriptures before. Herod is kind of like Pharaoh. Now watch what happens in chapter 12, verse 20. Luke wants to tell us what becomes of Herod. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which are two coastal cities within the region that he oversaw. Herod wasn't Herod was, was sort of a regional governor. He wasn't quite the king that he thought himself to be. He was a regional governor who kind of governed on behalf of the, of the, the empire of Rome here in this region. Those coastal cities, Tyre and Sidon, were apparently reliant on Herod and his territory for the provision of food. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. Now, Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So probably what's taking place here is that Tyre and Sidon, which are, again, these coastal cities, very independent, very wealthy, and Herod's mind, for some reason, they had gotten too big for their britches. Herod doesn't like it, so he decides he's going he's to flex on them by restricting their access to food. He withholds food from these cities essentially to enforce their compliance. It is a brutal and tyrannical thing to do. And it reminds me of a Mad Max movie. If you've ever seen one of the Mad Max movies, there's always these like desert tyrants that have access to one resource and they kind of position themselves as the benevolent ruler who you know, graciously grants access to these resources when at the end of the day they're just horrible, villainous, tyrannical baddies. Herod similarly is kind of posturing himself as this kind, benevolent ruler when in reality he's an evil, self-serving tyrant. So tyrannical Herod is unjustly flexing on these two cities, and the people say, you know, they say, uncle, we tap out, we ask for peace, give us peace, we'll do whatever you ask of us, just please feed us, feed the people in our city. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Right, so the picture here is that Herod is kind of preparing himself to make this grand announcement of peace to these two cities. You know, they persuade Blastus to get Herod's ear. Herod dresses up in his finest robes. He prepares to give this you know, delicious oration for the people that are going to be hanging on his every word. He's going to bless them. He's so benevolent and kind, is King Herod. Verse 22, the people were shouting as they see Herod shining and shimmering in his fine Attire in his royal robes, seated upon his throne, you know, with his fine speech, the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, which, by the way, is not good, <laughs> right? 
Characters in scriptures who are called gods are often, uh, they're shown to quickly jump to correct the people who mislabel them as deities, right? Only God is worthy of worship. Actually, in Acts chapter 14, something similar happens to Paul and Barnabas. They're on their first missionary journey in Lystra, performing miracles, and people come and say, you guys are the, you're, you're the, the like, physical embodiment of Greek gods, Paul and Barnabas, and it says that they tear their garments, like lickety split. They tear their garments, they're like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't call us that. These people are shouting, the voice of God and not of man. But God says loud and clear in the scriptures that he is a God who does not share his glory. I have a couple of passages on the screen for us. This is from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols or regional tyrants. Or Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. For my own sake, again, for my own sake, the Lord says, I redeem Israel. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Romans chapter 11, what our call to worship was this morning, starting in verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. What Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The scriptures are very clear that God does not share his glory. And it's not because God is meglo- megalomaniacal, that God is the, the bigger, more bad, more powerful, unjust tyrant. No, it's because it would be unjust or immoral for God to give glory to anyone other than God. God in his goodness and bigness must be adored even by God himself. And so God says, I don't share my glory. I don't share my glory, especially with these brutal Mad Max style tyrants. I love how 1 Timothy 6 just reads like somebody who wants to be real careful with glory thieving, right? It's like, you almost read Paul's experience, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's experience in Acts chapter 14. No, it is God alone who is worthy of worship. It's a proud, powerful, bloated, tyrannical Herod receives worship as God. Acts 12, verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. And watch this. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This event is actually recorded for us by a guy called Josephus, an ancient historian. I have this on the screen. This is too great not to share. He actually records the event of Herod's death, this this event of this ruler. Herod Agrippa put on a garment made wholly of silver and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And his flatterers cried out that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto referenced thee, reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. 
Watch this. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. When he said this, his his pain became so violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So records Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. Herod is struck down. A New Testament scholar, a guy named F.F. Bruce, points out that the phrase, eaten by worms, is not actually certain as to, as to whether or not we're to take that literally. It's a phrase that actually appears often in ancient literature, used to describe ancient leaders who die or who, are, who, who, are, uh, who pass away in a disgraceful fashion. So again, it's not clear how literal we're to read this. But here's the point. Here's the point of this passage. You ready? Jesus did something about Herod. James is killed, Peter's imprisoned, Herod is this unjust tyrant who flexes on these cities. Jesus sees it and Jesus responds to it. Jesus does something about Herod. Keep your finger in Acts 12, turn to Psalm 2. Thousands of years before these events, the psalmist records this poem. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In some ways, what we just read in the book of Acts is a test case as to whether or not Psalm 2 is is reality. In Psalm 2, we're told that the nations set themselves up against the Lord and against the anointed, like glory thieves. They position themselves as those who want to break the Lord's bonds on them apart. They reject the Lord as king. But the Lord responds laughing. It's like, it would be funny if it wasn't so pathetic. Because the Lord says, I have set my king on my holy hill. And the nations will be his. The nations will belong to my king. The ends of the earth will be his possession. And he will break like peanut brittle those who reject him. And so Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, tell us how to respond. Respond wisely to this, kings. Kiss the son. Take refuge in him. In many ways, the Bible is a story of a long line of empires and nations and kings setting themselves up against the Lord to their peril. And that pattern continues in our passage today. You know, I mentioned a little bit ago about all the Herods. You have Grandpa Herod, you have Uncle Herod, you have this Herod that's present in the passage. 
And as you read it, it's like, it, it would be really helpful if you guys would say, like, their full name. You have Herod Antipas or Herod Agrippa or whatever. But, but I suspect that the reason that the authors of the New Testament don't do this is not because they're bad historians who don't care about details. It's because they're good historians. They see a pattern. And they say, they're all the same, man. All of them. You got Pharaohs, and you got Nebuchadnezzars, and you got this Herod, and you got that Herod, and you got this Herod. It's just another king in a long line of glory-thieving kings who rage against the Lord and his anointed. And listen, the outcome for each of these glory-thieving kings who oppose the Lord Jesus always in every period of history, the way it always ends for them, the way every unjust ruler's fate ends is that Jesus does something about it. They're eaten by worms and they breathe their last. And so here's a word of comfort for us as we read this passage and think about our situations. Those who oppose Jesus lose. All glory-thieving tyrants will be worm food. All of them. Look at verse 23. Let's keep reading. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But watch this, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You know what happens next in chapter 13 of the book of Acts? Paul the Apostle begins his globe-trotting missionary journeys, spreading the good news of King Jesus all over the Roman world. Herod breathes his last, the message of Jesus multiplies. If we oppose Jesus, we lose. Glory-thieving tyrants will be worm food. There's a feel bleak when you read about Christians in places like the 1040 window. If you're not familiar, 1040 window is a, a particular longitude or latitude section of the, the planet. Places like India, China, Southeast Asia. It's easy to read stories about our brothers and sisters who are suffering in these regions and not grow discouraged. Do you read about the state of the church in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and feel deflated at their impotence? Certainly it's not what our brothers and Sisters in Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East experience, but something has changed, we make no mistake. I think this passage invites us to be good historians, to see a pattern, to see that it's all the same. The pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars and this Herod and that Herod and this Herod and this ruler and that ruler, it's just another in a long line of glory-thieving kings who raging is the Lord and his anointed, the kingdoms of this world opposed to the kingdom of God, but they will be worm food and the gospel will advance. History, know this, history is moving towards an end where all that opposes Jesus and his people and his kingdom will lose. One day, every unjust regime who inflicts suffering on Christians will be broken like pottery. One day, Muslim calls to prayer will cease and Jesus will be worshipped by all people in all parts of the world. One day, even the secular will bow their knees and proclaim that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, the great dragon who's behind all of it, his head will finally be ground to dust, suffering and evil will be no more, and we will stand with our Lord Jesus in the shadow of his wings, loved and cared for, reigning gloriously alongside of him. This is the conclusion to the grand story, and this small set of verses in the book of Acts gives us a sampling of the hope that we have in Christ. I think of the prayers and the martyrs in the book of Revelation. 
which as they're suffering and, and being opposed by these unjust rulers, their prayers are offered up to the Lord like incense day and night. Do you see us in our suffering, Lord? Will you do something about this suffering that we're experiencing? The promise of this passage is yes, the Lord Jesus sees our suffering, and the Lord Jesus will act on our behalf, and the Lord Jesus will oppose all of those forces that oppose his people. And Herod is a test case in that for us. But I think we can actually press this passage home even further, because I don't think that we're just comforted by this passage. I think actually that you and I are confronted by this passage. We read it and we think, yeah, King Herod is a punk. He gets what's coming to him. You know, he's the, he's the Amorton Joe Mad Max villain of this story. But here's the real kicker from this passage. The same heart in Herod is the same heart in Pharaoh, is the same heart in all the rest. It is the same heart in you and I. This, pa- pa- this passage is a picture of tyrants and it is a picture of us. Every soul in human history. To be human is to be a king and queen. Yes, you, each of us. God created us in his image to bear his kingship to all of creation. We were made to steward God's creation for, with, and like God. He created this world full of potential so that you and I, as kings and queens of this world, could draw out its potential and build beautiful things and expand God's reign to the ends of the earth and transform it and worship to God. But like Herod, we are glory thieves, every one of us. It starts when we rejected God in the garden. Living for God wasn't enough. We wanted to be God. We disobeyed him and we rejected him. And every soul is like our first parents. We live how we want to live with no regard to God and his design for us. We say that we control our destinies. We say that our lives are to be lived by our own judgment. Like Herod, we are drunk with power. We are tyrants. We punish people who don't do our bidding by being passive aggressive and by slander and by holding grudges and by being resentful. We demand God give us the life that we feel we are owed. We build our own kingdoms. We live only for ourselves. We redirect glory to our names at every opportunity. And listen, because Jesus is too good not to address it, address it, we are destined to be worm food, just like Herod. The Lord Jesus will judge sinners with an eternity in hell apart from him, apart from his goodness forever. And it is precisely because he is good that he does this. And you hear that, and, and I wonder how many of us hear that and we say that that seems unfair or cruel or unjust. And maybe what you need to hear me say in response to that is that he is God and you aren't. And that very tendency to stand in judgment over what God says about himself is exactly the issue. But there is good news, friends. There is refuge available in the sun. We talk about God's glory, and we talk about God's brightness shining in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But the place where the unapproachable light of God's glory is dialed up to full brightness is when God himself comes to us to suffer the condemnation that you and I justly deserve. And the thing that separates King Jesus from all other kings, the way that his supremacy is seen most clearly is that our king dies for glory thieves. The Lord Jesus goes to the cross for us and he dies for our sin. He is shamed. He becomes the object of contempt in order to restore you to himself. 
And when the Lord Jesus bursts out of the grave, fully alive, fully triumphant over every power of darkness, he invites us by grace to give the deepest part of ourselves, our very lives, to him. And we look on that, and it's like, how could we not respond in faith and delight and obedience and adoration to that kind of king, who is very much unlike Herod and Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and all of the other names that we can think of? And so the question for each of us, the question that is bearing down on every soul, is have you admitted that you are Herod? Or will you persist in opposing Jesus and lose Some of us need comfort this morning. Some of us need to to come here and be comforted. We're burdened and we're heavy laden by all manner of evils in the world. And we need to be comforted by this ironclad assurance that King Jesus rights all wrongs. This passage is a glorious foretaste of his just judgment on abuse and tyrants and evil and the dragon who have been actively at war with God and his people since the beginning. But others of us need to be confronted with the reality that we are glory thieves destined for judgment apart from Christ. And I I wonder here, maybe you're here this morning and you were like, I did not sign up to be told these things today. I wonder how all of this sounds to you, frankly. When you hear Christians talk about the reality of judgment and hell and heaven and death, does this sound dramatic or over the top? I mean, it's our conviction that to not speak about these things with urgency would, would be unjust It would be evil on our parts to not speak honestly about what the scriptures say to us. We feel compelled by this, and we urge you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Take refuge in the Son and be saved. Take the refuge that is offered to you in Christ. Be saved from your sin. I'll be in the lobby after worship, and Aaron will be by the door. The people that you came with, I know, would be thrilled to talk more with with you about the meaning of of what's been said this morning. It's our prayer that the Spirit would move in our hearts and help us to to see the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus who wages war against the nations which rage against him. I'm going to pray in the next few moments, and after I pray, we're just going to have space to reflect. Just ask the Holy Spirit, how would you have me to respond to this? How would you have me to respond to the things that have been said and the challenges that have been presented here in the scriptures this morning? Pray that the Spirit would offer you comfort through the, the power that's on display in this passage. And may the Lord Jesus grant us repentance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king over all things, and we acknowledge that we have resisted your lordship over our lives, and and Lord Jesus, we pray for a kind of holy dread over our sin, and that we would have have a, a right fear of you as the king over all nations, Lord Jesus, but I pray that it would be a fear that gives way to delight in the incredible sacrifice that you have made for us, and the, the offer of salvation and forgiveness that you've made available to us. We come to you with nothing in our hands but need, and we appeal to your mercy, and we know that you are a merciful 
good king. And we pray for your help, Lord Jesus, this morning. I do pray for anyone who is here this morning who has, has not repented and believed. I pray that they would see the, the, the reality of the gospel message and that they would respond. And would you help us to walk with them as they, as they wrestle through what these things mean and wrestle through some of the really challenging and confronting things that have been said this morning. And Lord Jesus, as I prayed moments ago, we just pray that you would be big among us and that you'd be strong and that we would, we would take rest in your power. Thank you for being a God of judgment and a God of grace.